Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Eliza Kelly, and I am sitting here today with Cameron Glover, who is a sex educator, a writer, a bath witch. Yes. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you about all of these things, especially bath witch stuff. Oh, because yeah. I've never heard someone just straight up describe themselves as a bath witch. Yeah. But you're I, a Pisces. Exactly. So it makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> and I feel like the Pisces energy is very, very strong with me. So I don't know. I just I love it. And I love talking about it. I'm, I think that we are all going to be um, really looking forward to finding out what it means to be a bath witch. Yeah. So for our listeners, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got to be where you are? Yeah. So I'm from Jersey. So I don't know. The accent might come out. It may not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like Elisa said, I'm a writer, a sex educator. I primarily focus on um, I kind of like to describe it as I'm not the how to person. So I don't really like doing like condom demonstrations or being like your high school gym teacher and kind of showing you like the how Have you ever seen the movie How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days? Yes. I was just watching it on the airplane Mm -hmm. and Kate Hudson Kate Hudson's character also does not want to be a how-to person. That's her whole vibe. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Now excuse to rewatch it. (laughs) Yeah. Like I am just really fascinated by the ways that like culture and identity shape how we look at sexuality because I think that First and foremost, pleasure is a right. It's not a privilege. And especially as like a black queer person, as a femme, as somebody that carries all these multiple marginalized identities, I think it's really important that I'm connecting like my history and my lineage and like who I am as a person into my work. And kind of through that um, and through oftentimes just me being in the room, um, just existing at the forefront of the space, like I'm giving permission to other people to kind of take ownership of what pleasure and sexuality looks like for them too. So I kind of narrow that down to just like integrating social justice within sexuality. And um, I do many things, but my primarily um, I focus a lot of my work online. And I feel like that's the space that's most comfortable for me. That's where I can have the most amount of reach. And I don't know, I love it. So how did you find your way into talking about sexuality? Um, Is it something that was, you know, was in your household growing up? Was it something that your family was comfortable talking about? Is it something that you have always sort of been willing to be open about and share? Yeah. um, No. (laughs) (laughs) I I told the story at a uh, conference that I was at. I was like, does anyone remember those... um, that American Girl book. It was kind of like our generation's, like our bodies ourselves. And it was like this cute little handbook and there were like three different girls on the cover. And it was all about just like puberty basically and like your body. The puberty books were my favorite books. I was Mine such too. I was such a horny little 11 year old. Yes. I would like <laughs> st- go straight to Barnes and Noble and be like, what about this adolescent section where mm-hmm. I could see my body changing? Yes, <laughs> yes. So I remember one day at dinner, I was um, talking to my mom and we're just like, you know, eating whatever. And I'm just like, where do babies come from? And she gives me, she answered me, which is great, but she gave me like the most clinical like answer that anyone could have given me like it was just very like and this is it like this is it like they go through the canal and that's exactly where they come from right (laughs) and then the next day I just remember that book was on like the edge of my bed and there was no further conversation like that was it 
So <laughs> kind of from there, I feel like like anyone else um, with an internet connection, I just got curious and like found stuff online and kind of did not even self-study. I just found a lot of fan fiction, honestly, and kind of found my way um, into sex kind of in that way. And it wasn't until I got older, really like in college, when I started thinking about these things and realizing that no one ever like talked to me about pleasure and especially no one ever talked about the ways that like I specifically culturally um, experience pleasure and how we talk about pleasure. Because I think that is something I think about a lot is that these conversations are always framed in a very like inclusive, not even inclusive, a very neutral way. Like your parents are are supposed to like sit you down and like have this conversation with you um, or like if you get information about sex and sexuality from different places, it's always supposed to be scary. But there's actually, I think, really interesting conversations happening about these topics through media and like created by people that reflect the folks that want that information, if that makes sense. So um, personally, now I do a lot of like integration of media within my teaching because I think it's really important to have a like media literacy and like a cultural understanding of like sex and talking about sex and sexuality looks different for so many different people and there's room for all of it right so I don't know it's a very long-winded answer (laughs) no I mean I think it makes sense that you know you said that the work that you're doing now is work that is the primary platform that you're using is the internet Mm -hmm. and that's also how you are able to develop your own lexicon for talking about and yeah. learning about sex and sexuality mm-hmm. is is the resources of the internet. Yeah, like even, I mean, we were just talking about romantic comedies too, and I loved them growing up. And I feel like they were a really good shaping of my own understanding of pleasure and sexuality. And even from that watching like, I don't know, like 10 Things I Hate About You and like all these other films that kind of came out in that time period, I feel like that definitely shaped how I looked at sex and sexuality. But those didn't always reflect my own sexual experiences or even the questions that I had about sex and sexuality, right? Like even stepping into like my queerness, like I didn't come out and recognize myself as a queer person until I was in my 20s. Um, And like what, like what impact does that have, Mm -hmm. right, on someone? And even if we look at sex education and the erasure of queer folks on the erasure of people of color which like that's I feel like that's a whole other thing that could be a podcast in and of itself too just this idea of like so many of us are erased from this space when like we built this space Mm -hmm. is something that I feel like I'm constantly thinking about and like how can I bring that back into the conversation that I'm having with folks while also carrying space for like you know pleasure and sexuality can still be yours, but like it's important to recognize these other things as well. So how would you, what would you say the point of intersection is? You know, what would make sex education now, today, something is that is actually helpful in in really describing and being inclusive and speaking to all different types of people? What are the, the some of the key variables of that? Uh, Well, first and foremost, we need to have a 
like we need to take a look at who's teaching it. Like, where is this information coming from? Who are we qualifying as experts? Who are the people that are standing in front of rooms speaking? And like, actually examine what they're saying. Um, I think that like, I don't know, it kind of annoys me when people talk about cancel culture as like a thing, because I feel like there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. And I always think that being called out like that is that is an act of love. Like if someone that I am working with or somebody that I know personally is like, hey, you're doing this thing that's like not so cool or like that is really harmful to me. Like that is a gift to like know that. Right. And it is a gift to be given the opportunity to like change that. And I think that in sex ed, it's reflective of a lot of um other spaces that hold to tradition. So we're still seeing a lot of white folks primarily um, taking up a lot of space. We're still seeing a lot of cis folks. We're still seeing a lot of folks that are carrying very traditionalist ideals um, that are not being welcoming to anyone else being at the forefront and like learning from other people too. And I think that that's like, we have to recognize that that can be a form of violence as well. So like first and foremost, passing the mic Um, there's kind of like this saying of like giving voice to the voiceless that I think is really silly because everyone has a voice. So instead I kind of, I try to use pass the mic as an example. So like we all have collective power. We all have shared experiences and expertise and like things that we can learn from each other. So instead of trying to like, I don't know, do for someone else, I think the best thing that we can do is like make space for other people to come in and like share that expertise, right? Because that's how we grow as a community community collectively. And that's how we have the opportunity to grow. I was, I, when I was a, in college, I was an art history student and mm-hmm. I took this women in art class that truly changed my life. I think it changed the entire way that I was seeing the world and understanding the the information that I was being told um, by the institutions mm-hmm. I thought I could trust. Mm-hmm. And my very, very brilliant professor um, started the class with an essay by this feminist uh, art historian named Linda Nochlin. Mm-hmm. And her essay basically said, why are there no great women artists is the title of the essay. And it goes on to say, because greatness is defined in masculine terms. Mm -hmm. So you can't be great if you're not a man. So, of course, there were no women artists who were being exalted in the same way that their male contemporaries were because great equals man. Mm -hmm. And I think that that shifting of recognizing where we are going to how we're what the subtle attributions are, you know, is pleasure something that is. Uh, is really something that everyone can claim or is it something that we are in our own subconscious mind connecting to a particular type of cis white man who's looking at a particular type of pornography and is having sex in a particular type Mm -hmm. of way Mm -hmm. Um, and if we only see pleasure through that lens then of course there's no room to have people of all different types of backgrounds and identities also claim pleasure. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying, pleasure is for everyone. Yeah. And pleasure also looks different for everyone, too. So like even like no two people experience pleasure in exactly the same way. So it's just it's it's just very silly to me that we're all kind of like striving towards this ideal. But like it's not a one size fits all situation. And like I just 
uh, the amount of people that feel this like relief when like they get into a space with like me or like other educators that are doing this work and they're just like, wow, this is the first time like someone's validated this for me. Like that's the power of having different people showing and leading by example. Like it's not just about the like the visible like representation, right? It goes so much deeper than that. And yeah, it's just, it's really, really important. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, when you, when we're younger, well, actually, let me rephrase this. Do you think that sex education is a lifelong process? Yeah, yeah. I think that sex and like just our personal journeys, right? Like we are not the same people that we were five years ago, five minutes ago, even. And sexuality is very much the same thing. Like it is definitely reflective of the life cycle and it changes and it grows and it looks different at different points in our lives. And like, that's totally fine. Um, But I think that also too, learning about that means recognizing that there is no right way to kind of like explore that as well. Um, And that it's okay to like the things that maybe didn't like, that maybe worked for you before, if they don't work for you now, that's totally cool because now you get to rediscover what does work for you, right? And that's super yeah, exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I as I continue to get older, I and post-Saturn return, mm-hmm. am realizing that so much of my relationship with sex was built on trauma. Mm-hmm. And in uh, thinking that I wanted to have sex in certain ways or identify in at different times with different things. I mean, I remember being 13 and just straight out calling, you know, I would refer to myself as a slut all the mm-hmm. time. It was like my favorite thing to say about yeah. myself. Um, and I know that there are people who want to reclaim that term now, but sometimes when I see that, it actually is very triggering for mm-hmm. me um, because I was... I was sort of I was using that language to describe myself because it was as a byproduct of other people bullying me. Yeah. So then I was like just sort of accepting it and being like, well, if they're going to say that, I mean, none none of this was conscious. Of course, Mm -hmm. this was like 13 years old trying to figure out myself. But sometimes when I see, you know, people reclaiming the word slut or people who are um, are really like hyper sexualized Mm -hmm. and they are doing it with agency it still makes me upset yeah because it has so much there's so much pain embedded in those things for me and I would imagine for other people too Mm -hmm. how do you reconcile that like how can we move through the internet (laughs) 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 now in a way that is um I don't know is is respectful and compassionate to people who may have also be working through trauma and their own slut shaming at different points yeah oh that's such a really great question and it also made me think too okay (laughs) rude Rude. (laughs) (laughs) i was getting to a really important point um it's just making me think about how many of us particularly people of marginalized genders like so much of our lives not even just sexually is framed around trauma and like all of a lot of things that we are learning and internalizing are rooted from trauma responses. And so like now we're spending all this time of like not only recognizing who we are as people, but like unlearning this really toxic behavior and then having to do that learning all over again. Right. Like that's that's kind of exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a lot for everybody to be 
sort of working through their shit publicly yeah. at the same time. Oh my gosh. Like that. And that's the other thing too. I feel like it's okay to not put everything publicly. Like I, even though a lot of my work is online, I'm still a very private person, I would say. Like I don't post a lot of personal things online just because I feel like that's just not what's comfortable for me. Like I know folks that like they post every aspect of their lives online because that is how they cultivate community. And I think that's really beautiful. But knowing that this doesn't work for me and I feel my best when I know that I can turn the camera off, that I can like go offline and still have things that are like just for me um, and not kind of feel like I have an audience or I need to perform for other people is really important for my personal healing and my journey. So like we were talking before, I'm in a monogamous relationship and I don't post pictures of my partner online. And I don't know, I think that works out really great for us. He's not even like somebody that's really online all that much too, which is kind of refreshing. It's like, I don't know. It's really nice not feeling this um, feeling that I need to be on display or like there's it means something if we don't post pictures online together or like they don't tag me in something, you know, like and I think that that can also it can be like a distraction sometimes from like hearing our own inner voice and like recognizing what works for us and what doesn't. Um, so I don't know. I think that it's cool to like experiment with different things online, but also giving yourself and giving other people the grace to like, they're figuring stuff out too. And if something doesn't work for you, then that's totally okay. With the way that we're engaging on Instagram, you know, I would say Instagram is really, there's other social media too, but Instagram is such a, it's a visual platform and Mm -hmm. we are such visual people. Um, it's, we're all like, you know, maybe before I even put in a judgment on it and qualify it, a normal experience scrolling on Instagram now is seeing a really pretty person Mm -hmm. who has like a giant ass and is somehow in like a very tropical location. Always. They're always (laughs) somewhere super shiny. The water's very clear. Like, yeah. yeah. And and there, there is sort of... um, I think that it's it's complicated because on one hand, it's like, yes, they are the person who is posting this picture. They've edited it to their own liking with their own Facetune app. Um, it's something that's within their control and domain, but yet it still feels, makes me feel icky. Mm-hmm. And it also feels, um, you know, it's very desensitizing to see all of these images, but they're images that if we saw 20 years ago would have been like, that shit is for like Penthouse magazine, you know? Mm-hmm. How is, what do you think that that, how do you feel like people at large, like generationally, holistically are um, approaching sex and sexuality now under the auspices of all of this visual stimuli and mm-hmm. sort of hypersexualization? Mm, this is a very good question. And I feel like I have kind of a... Um unpopular response well maybe not too unpopular I don't know I'm not gonna qualify it (laughs) I'm just gonna say it I think that a lot of what you're talking about it's reminding me of the work that I do and the work that a lot of other educators I know talk about um, because there's still so much privilege that's attached to that so at the time of this recording um, this past weekend I moderated a talk called oppression and the algorithm here in New York and 
the topic of the talk was all about mostly Instagram, (laughs) um, but digital spaces that are regulated against sex educators and sexuality professionals, including sex workers, um, and the ways that like in the algorithm, like in the code that actually makes the social media like a thing that we all have, like it is coded against us. And we're talking about things like shadow banning. We're talking about things that are just like pushing us off of the app without directly like- How did this come to light? Like how did, how was it discovered that these algorithms existed in the first place? Yeah, so it's, I mean, like everything else, I think in the sexuality space, it all started with sex workers. And it's I mean, I think this is a thing that definitely requires a larger conversation because sex workers are continuously pushed out of the sexuality space. They're not recognized as sexuality professionals um, and just face a lot of um, stigma and oppression just as a marginalized class that more people should be talking about. Um, But in particular, um, we started seeing this as long before SESTA-FOSTA, but people really started talking about it with the passing of SESTA-FOSTA, which were these two connected laws that essentially made um, individual sites responsible if they were um, found to be promoting um, sex trafficking, which is... And if you actually look at the law itself, it's like intentionally worded very like loosely, right? Like there's all these questions and how it was written, but it's also very clear that there was actually no one in the sexuality space consulted because it's like anyone that works in the sex trafficking space um, to eradicate it will tell you like, this is not how you deal with this, right? Um, And the ways that like social media are often the only safe spaces that people actually have when it comes to like screening folks, when it comes to having safe spaces to report, right? And to share information widely to a community. So yeah, we've seen specifically on Facebook and Instagram, because again, they're owned by like the same person, right? But we've seen with Taurus, Mm -hmm. Mr. Zuckerberg. Oh, God. And the terms and conditions and the ways that the algorithm has changed to amend to SESTA-FOSTA is written in a very sex negative way. Um, But like the collective community outrage didn't come until it was affecting like people's abilities to post like personally right like we didn't see this outrage when it was just sex workers being affected we didn't even see this outrage when sexuality professionals that are not sex workers were starting to post about this it didn't happen until like i think i don't know i didn't really see a collective outrage honestly until tumblr was affected and then people were like where can i get my porn now Right. So now as like a sexuality professional, it's we have to adhere to a lot more uh, stringency, I guess, in the ways that we use Instagram. So just like as an entrepreneur, as somebody that like works for herself and like I I can't post ads (laughs) every time I've tried to do an ad, it's been denied um, for sexually suggestive language because it simply has the word sex in it. So like I host events, I have a digital product, I have other digital products that I'm working on and I like all of the advertising and has to be like grassroots or I have to collaborate with other folks or like kind of find other avenues to do it. Whereas other entrepreneurs, other folks in the business space, they'll just be like, you know, just do like a Facebook ad or all these different avenues that I can't access simply because of the work that I do. And I think that it's really 
more so the lack of understanding of what it is that I do. It's not necessarily the work because if I sat down and like really explained what I do, I feel like most people would be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, right? But because there's this, there's this idea that sex educators are, you know, whatever the idea is of like what we do. And like, there's definitely an idea of what sex workers do and like how they're supposed to be, I guess, then that is trickled down to that bias now becomes a barrier um, to keep us from accessing the same things that other people can access. So a lot of the talk yesterday, it was really, it was really, really great um, to just have a space where black and brown folks specifically in the field were talking about this because we're not just regulated because of the work that we do. It's also like the algorithm, the algorithm is racist as well. So like, even with all this being said, right, there's still folks that are posting scantily clad like images on themselves. And that's not what the issue is because anyone should feel like they can do that. But the issue be now becomes if someone sends me a dick pic, right, unsolicited, of course, because <laughs> <laughs> it's never solicited. But and when they get sent, like there's no way for me to contact like a support service line at Instagram or Facebook, right, to like get that issue resolved or something. If I post something and then hours later it gets taken down, there's no opportunity for me to edit the post, amend it in any way. Um, and it's also the things that we're seeing taken down um, through the shadow banning, right? So individual posts being taken down we still see like hate speech being put up and like being left up and like following community guidelines, even if we report it when we see whole accounts being taken down. So a lot of like sex toy companies specifically have like literally woken up one day and their accounts have been just gone and kind of the action that the community has taken because they have amassed larger followings, their community is able to rally and collectively um, urge the platform to give them that plat like that account back, which they eventually do. But how sustainable is that? Because that's not a tactic that everybody can access, right? If I don't have like a blue check mark by my name, or if I don't have thousands and thousands of followers, how can that be a sustainable option for me in the long run? So if and when my account does get taken down as a sex educator that's on the platform there's no protections, like there's no options for me except to like start from the ground up. So there's just all these things that are just stacked against us, um, both as people in the field and as people of color, and then all these other identities that we hold as well that just make it so much harder for us to just give information and access to people that they're already asking for, right? Like people want a different kind of sex education. They want more accessible, um, more diverse, more colorful, more just more kinds of sex education. And social media is one of the few ways that like we're able to access that on a larger scale than we've ever seen. Um, yeah. And it's just like so super, super frustrating. When we, when we like, you know, climb this rope all the way up to the top, who's who's holding it? You know, what is what is the reason that there is this uh, the, that there are these bans and there are these blocks and there are these limitations mm -hmm. for individuals to 
talk about their own sexuality and to for even sex toy companies which are large and Mm -hmm. oftentimes vc backed Mm -hmm. um why wouldn't they be able to promote their product who's the one who's saying you can't do this Exactly. Like it comes down to, again, if you look at the terms and conditions on these sites, like they are specifically calling out anyone that is promoting sexual contact. But then even then, then even then, (laughs) um, using the sex toy um, example too, like um, what I forget which company it is. Dame. Dame is suing the MTA um, because they were just they're claiming discrimination against being able to post ads. So like if you're in New York, if you've taken the subways, you've probably seen ads for Hims, which is like an erectile dysfunction company. Um, and they're like, you know, whatever. They're really super phallic. <laughs> they're way more suggestive than anything I've seen like on Dame or any other sex toy companies, um, mock promotions, right? But the MTA has continuously denied them because they are promoting like I don't know, dangerous things because it's like a hand holding a vibrator, right? <laughs> a millennial pink vibrator. And I think mm-hmm. that there's there's a lot of things that comes with that, right? There's this, there's this oppression, right? There is this puritanical idea of what sex needs to look like because a lot of people still think that sex should be something that you don't talk about, you have behind closed doors, we don't air our dirty laundry. Um, and then if you do talk about it, like, you should be villainized like you should all these things are connected with it because sex is inherently bad um, and is that some like yeah that's so that's some like old puritanical shit is that what we're still working with yes. are we working with yes. is it the lobbyists like, yes 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 like it is there's a lot of sex negativity and there's i think it's really important that people are not only talking about this, but we're having sexuality professionals in the room in these spaces. So like these larger tech companies like Instagram and Facebook, they're actually at the event. There was a person that worked at Facebook there. And I was like, great, you need to hire us and actually pay sex educators as consultants to look at some of these policies and help you to like both understand and also work with you to write new policy because this is ridiculous, right? Like that is the kind of collective change that needs to happen in addition to more education and like more collective um, push towards sex inclusivity and sexual liberation that looks like um, sexual pleasure being accessed in multiple different ways. Yeah, it's, you know, I have this, it's a joke, but Mm -hmm. it's also not a joke Mm -hmm. where I refer to the founding fathers as a bunch of losers yeah and i really do feel like a big thing that we have in the united states is this concept of tradition and respect right in these and we use these in very strange and freaky ways like you know in my black holes that i will go down when i am looking at trump supporters and their freaky ass like yeah i mean i do i torture myself but i feel like it's important for me to know what is happening because mm-hmm. I'm in such a beautiful celestial bubble. Yeah. Um, and they'll say things like, show a little respect. Like they love that particular mm-hmm. phrase. And I do sort of ruminate on that concept of like, wouldn't you're saying show some respect? You know, it's often surrounding a racist, a sexist, a hateful, xenophobic comment, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's justifying um, some closed minded thinking 
that relates back to this concept of what America, this this purified America, of what America should be. And we have to remember that the country was fucked from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, we have these idealized versions of what the United States looked like, of these brilliant old white men with Mm -hmm. their gorgeous wigs and not in drag Mm. (laughs) Mm. signing the declaration and i don't know i've personally seen better wigs i'm just saying (laughs) right i mean first thing to debunk the wigs weren't that good Mm -hmm. (laughs) number one the teeth were wooden like there was was a lot going on yeah there were some issues i mean you could right you could just look at the wigs to see it (laughs) but we from the beginning you know the best thing that they did was create the concept of amendment and say we you know we know that our teeth could be better so we're going to create the concept of amending things so that we can improve on our situations and our circumstances right that was truly the only good thing that came from the signing to me but the idea of amendment is that we do need to be willing to change it Mm -hmm. it's the same with like gun control right like sure Back in the late 1700s, when this was like a lawless land, okay, have your gun. Today, nobody needs it. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no reason for us to have people with automatic rifles protecting their homes ever, Mm -hmm. right? That's not a realistic concept. And similarly, with this puritanical idea of sex, like, we don't need this anymore. This is outdated. Was it ever really necessary? Probably not. But especially now more than ever, we need to be willing to redefine and requalify what these concepts are. Um, I think that, you know, this goes back to a lot of the things when we look at the history of witchcraft, when we look at the history of spiritual uh, women who are working with their own tools and their own magic Mm -hmm. uh it often the reason that there is stigma surrounding it is is because of fear of people having their own power yeah when people can have their own power it reduces the power of the institution Mm -hmm. and and it collapses right because if we aren't afraid of the institution then why do we need it in the first place yeah and that's exactly what i was gonna say too like I think the response of moving, returning back to a puritanical, fascist, um, violent, oppressive view of sex, like this is, it's not about sex, really. It's about another form of power and control over a community, over people, period. Um, People that don't fit an ideal and people that do feel an ideal, how do we like uphold them and make them feel good, right, about where they are and like, to the point that they will fight to like make sure no one else gets that. And yeah, we just need to like get rid of those systems because it not only doesn't serve us, but it just continues a legacy of further violence. And I think that we're better than that, honestly. Definitely. So I also want to talk about um, your one of the ways that you described yourself. I want to know what you do as a bath witch. Yes. So tell us all about this. Oh my gosh, yes. So, and I think that this is a beautiful segue too because um, I think it's also really important to prioritize personal pleasure and healing and baths are definitely one of the ways that I do that. So um, 
I, I don't know if I actually told you this. Me and my maternal grandmother have the same birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah, we do. We were born on the exact same day. Um, clearly not the same year, but. <laughs> um, what so, is time? <laughs> yeah, time is an illusion anyway, so whatever. Um, yeah, and I just thought that was a really special thing. So, like, growing up, we had, like, a really close bond. We're still, like, really close. But she was the one that really introduced the idea of spirituality and, like, witchcraft to me. Um, so I feel like I always kind of grew up with this idea that there was something more out there, but also recognizing that I had like innate inner power in me. Um, and I just I feel like I've been really stepping into that um, as an individual these last few years. So I practice again pretty privately. I do like tarot on myself. I'll like do readings here and there, but I feel like I'm most consistent um, with bath magic. So I like to call myself a bath witch. Um, I just feel like it feels the most comfortable for me. Um, as a Pisces, I just really enjoy being in bodies of water <laughs> and <laughs> baths are just like a really special sacred time, especially if you live, you know, in a city like New York, I feel like first of all, having a bathtub is like a luxury in and of itself. Um, and then being able to like adorn the space with like not just crystals, but like candles and like different basalts and different um, oils and like ointments and have it be a whole experience is just really powerful for me. And so I kind of practice with like, of course, there's different types of baths that I'm doing. If I'm um, particularly focused on like manifesting something or if I just want to do like a cleansing, um, I feel like I can do that. And Another thing of why I really enjoy identifying as a bath witch is I feel like there is no like heavy entry point to it. So like you don't need to go out and like buy all these special materials or whatever. You don't need to do that period, but like you really don't need to do that with bath magic. You literally just, it's you in the water. I had a really powerful um, bath manifestation experience mm. last year. Mm -hmm. um, without getting into the depth of the, these very personal details surrounding why I ended up in a bath mm -hmm. surrounded by candles chanting. Mm -hmm. um, let's just say it was sort of my, uh, it was like basically like the last possible thing I could do to try to mm -hmm. heal a situation that was becoming very, very, very scary. Mm -hmm. um, and I was trying to figure out how to stop somebody from continuing to take action in the way that they were. So I created this whole space. I created a whole setup in my bathroom, mm -hmm. New York City apartment style, right? So yep, yep. you're making do with like, you're opening the medicine cabinet and mm -hmm. putting some candles in there. Like yeah. every little inch you're taking advantage the top of. of the toilet. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, no corner left behind. No corner left behind. You, you couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. um, and I planted myself in the bathtub and I had created this rhyme um, that was specific to the cord cutting that I was doing. And rhymes are really a super, super important part of um, spell work mm -hmm. because they are, first of all, it's it creates this sort of memorization device where you can just attach yourself to the words, which helps yeah. create that um, mantra where you could just sort of be chanting this over and over again without really thinking about it. You get into this meditative state. Um, 
but it also creates a vibration. It creates this vibrational frequency that if you say something over and over again, it actually just starts, you know, the the water in the bathtub, for instance, starts to sort of move at the rhythm of your own speech. Mm -hmm. So I had been in the bathtub doing a solar, I was doing solar work in there. So I had yellow and I was working with sunflower oil and everything was about light and shining light. Mm And I had been saying this rhyme over and over again so much, maybe 30 minutes straight. And the water had started to move in the rhythm of my breath in the bath. And then I stopped and the water kept making the same sounds Mm. as me saying it. So even though I no longer was speaking, the water was actually continuing to say that. And I submerged myself in the water. You know, this is all within a matter of 30, 45 seconds. And I submerged myself in the water. So my ears were inside of it. And I could hear myself still in the water. And it was the trippiest fucking experience because I had created this sort of vacuum of Mm -hmm. sound. It was like a sound bath. Yeah, literally, literally. <laughs> um, and I was so shook by this experience. I was so moved by it. And I was like, wow, there is so much power in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, like everything that I do that I find to be very powerful, I, I reserve it because I'm very OCD with these things. So I'm yeah. like, I could only do that in very serious situations because mm-hmm. I want to keep it sacred and special. But for listeners who are at the moment where they feel like they need to really dial up their intention setting and mm-hmm. manifestation, bath confirmed is a great place to yes. practice witchcraft. Yes, I love it. I love it so, so much. Um, and you can really tailor it to all your different needs, too. So, like, I feel like it goes with so many different kinds of spell work, too. Like, any kind of mood, like, any cycle of the moon not i wouldn't recommend doing it during eclipses but no you know, no manifesting no. during eclipses no, just, you know chill relax <laughs> <laughs> but i just i love how adaptable it is because water right takes it can take so many different forms too so it makes sense um yeah i just i can't get enough <laughs> so you also just wrote and released an ebook i did so can you tell us more about that yes so i um as you can probably tell i get a lot of like DMs and comments and a lot of questions. And over time, I feel like you can relate to this this as well. Just like over time, people start asking the same questions over and over again. And there is a lot of conversation about how to become a sexuality professional. Like what exact steps do I need to take to get to that point? And I wanted to make a resource that A, people could access whenever, um, And like, however, I didn't need to physically be there to give them that answer or they didn't have to wait for me to do like give it to them directly. Right. And then there was also these other things that I feel really strongly about. So especially this idea of like certification um, and qualifying expertise through I can only be an expert if I like go to school for X amount of years or I get this kind of degree or what have you. So kind of instead of answering all those individually, I thought that it would be a bit easier to make in books. So I made an ebook called How to Become a Sexuality Professional. Super straightforward. straightforward. Yeah, to the point. Um, I feel like that's my Virgo moon coming out. But I was just like, <laughs> listen, this is what it is. Um, and it is a digital guidebook for anybody that is curious about the field, anybody that is thinking about it, or if you're just starting out and you want to figure out 
how to create the best foundation that you can to be the best sexuality professional you can be. Um, I created it to be interactive. It's like over 30 pages of um, words as well as like space for you to like write in it. Because I feel very like strongly that people don't need to feel as precious with books as we think we do. Like it's okay to write in the margins and like flip the, you know, like do whatever you need to do to make the most out of it um, because it is essentially a tool. And then there's also resources as well because I also feel like to be a sexuality educator, to do anything, um, learning is plays a very important part in that. And learning is also continuous. So mm-hmm. I made sure to include resources and things like that. But yeah, so far the response to the ebook has been like fantastic. Amazing. Like, <laughs> I'm still like blown away by how many people like purchased it. Um, And we're so excited about it. And other folks in the field were like, also, thank you. Like I um, shout out to my colleague, Dirty Lola. She's a New York City based educator and event host. And she had like the sweetest message about the ebook. So she purchased it and she had this like really incredible message she sent me on Facebook. And she was just like, you know, thank you, because this is one of the few resources that talked about being in the field and also validated my path because she didn't go to college and she's like I don't have a degree like I'm out here doing this work and I still felt seen and I still felt validated and that meant like so much to me you know comments like that or even um another person another mutual that I have on Twitter was like really excited because they're like oh my gosh like the entry point to this it's like I did an early bird sale. So um, people that purchased the ebook for the first week that it came out, they were able to get it for $19. And they're like, wow, I don't need to shell hundreds of dollars to get this information. Right. And like this reaches so many more people than it does. Um, So, yeah, I'm just really excited about it. I have so many other ideas for things that I want to do. But if you're thinking about how to enter into the field and you have different questions like this is a resource for you so you can get that on my website uh for 29 dollars, which is still a steal honestly. yeah definitely yeah that's amazing yeah so where can we find you where can we find your website yeah so you can find me on instagram and twitter hanging out um my handle is black girl manifest that is blk girl manifest um we also didn't talk about my podcast. Wow. <laughs> Let's fucking com- talk about it. I completely forgot because I'm on hiatus and trying to stick to those boundaries. <laughs> but I also host a um, a podcast called Sex, Ed, and Color. And it's on hiatus right now, but it is a show where I sit down and interview other sexuality professionals of color. And we just talk about our experiences and expertise in the field. We have really important, necessary conversations about the work that we do and also how we bring in identity and all these like really exciting, interesting aspects of ourselves into our work. Um, so yeah, you can also listen to that podcast wherever you get your shows, um, but you can also follow along with what's going on and when the show will be back in the fall um, on Twitter and Instagram as well at Sex Ed and Color. And if you want to purchase the ebook, <laughs> most importantly, you can find that on my website, CameronGlover.com, all one word slash shop, and you'll find it there. Amazing. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on this, and I think that everyone is going to really enjoy following you and. And learning more about how to actually 
improve their lives. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. 